Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Kindergarten and below, you may leave now to go to kids' worship. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I read this past week about a village in Paraguay that was having problems with monkeys. Now, I've been to South Asia many times, and as glamorous as it is to see monkeys running around, they're not fun little creatures. They're satanic. They're evil. <laughs> you know. But this village in Paraguay had problems with monkeys. These monkeys were sneaking into the village and stealing the food. And it was really causing a lot of problems. And so the villagers had to act quickly. They had to deal with these pesky monkeys. And so they came up with this clever plan. They would set these ingenious traps all throughout the village. And here's what the trap was. They would take a coconut, and they would bore a hole in the coconut, and they would make a hole there, and they would, they would take all the stuff out of the coconut, and they would put like rice or smushed up bananas inside the hole, and then they would take a rope and attach it to a tree. And so a monkey would come up, and he would see the coconut, and he'd stick his hand in the hole and grab the food. But then when he would try to take his hand out, he couldn't take the coconut. He couldn't take the food because it was attached to the tree. So the monkey kept getting really mad. He wanted the food. He couldn't get his hand out of the coconut. So he started hopping up and down and getting really upset and really mad. And eventually when the villagers heard the monkey screaming in frustration, they would come and they would capture the monkey and they would take the monkey as far away from the village as they could so the monkey would not find its way back. So here's the problem. Here's the irony. If only the monkey would let go of the food in his fist he would be free. The problem was, was the monkey was so obsessed with holding on to that food that it was trapped. He wanted that food at all costs. It trapped him. If he just let go of the food, his hand would come out and he would no longer be trapped. Now, this is a picture, is it not, of what happens to us at times. When it comes to money, when it comes to possessions, when it comes to idols, we hold on for dear life. We hold on tightly, and we don't realize we're trapped in idolatry. If we would just let our hands go, let it go, we would be free. Now, what does a monkey letting go of a banana in a coconut tree have to do with our passage this morning? Well, we're going to talk about the account of the rich young ruler. This shows up also in Matthew and Mark's gospel, so it's important that it shows up in three of the four gospels, and we find out from the other ones that he's rich, and he's young, and he's a ruler. So let's read together Luke chapter 18, starting in 18, the rich young ruler. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do... To inherit eternal life. 
And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So from this passage of Scripture this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to explore three teachings, or three truths, that we're going to find directly emerge from the text this morning. And here is the first truth that we see. Trusting in yourself only produces an anxious lack of assurance. When you trust in yourself, it's only going to produce this anxiety, this lack of assurance. Now, we need to think about why this rich man approached Jesus with the question that he did. Now, we find out a clue there in verse 23. It says he was extremely rich. I mean, extremely rich, abundantly rich. He, he was very wealthy, had a lot of, lot of riches. And so this enormous wealth did not satisfy. It did not bring him the security he was looking for. It left him anxious, wondering if he had done enough to be right with God. Because he comes to Jesus and says, I need, what, what must I do? There must be something extra. There must be something out there I need to do. I've got riches. I've got all these things. But there's, there's something that I've got to do, Jesus, to be right with you. What is that one extra thing I need to do? And that, that's left him a little bit anxious. He, he doesn't have the security. He comes to Jesus and thinks there's got to be something out there. I'm unsettled. There's got to be something out there I must do to be right with God, to inherit eternal life. Now, have you ever felt... A, like that before? Perhaps you're here today and you're not settled in your heart about your relationship with God. You're not sure if you're really in His good graces. And you think to yourself, well, have I prayed enough? Have I gone to church enough? Have I given enough money? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I tried to be good enough? Is there something missing? Have I gone on enough mission trips? Is there something that that I'm missing? I don't have that security. I don't have that assurance. I don't have that peace with God. There must be something missing. Is your heart restless today because you don't have peace with God? 
This past week, we were in, or I was in California for the Southern Baptist Convention, and I went out to dinner with a pastor friend of mine, and um, the server, the waitress, came over to our table, and I don't normally do this, but he did this. He, he asked her if there's anything we could do to pray for her, and she was kind of taken aback by that, and she stopped, and she said, I don't have peace. I need peace. And we prayed for her after she left. But I wonder how many people are feeling that same thing. I don't have peace. I don't have peace in my life. I don't have peace with God. We just sang it. It is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? Do you have peace? the peace of Christ? Or are you like this young man that you're wrestling? You've got wealth, you've got all these things, but there's something missing. You have that lack of assurance. There's something deep down that has you doubting. I venture to guess there are millions of people around the world that are unsettled in their hearts because they don't have peace with God. They don't know if they're going to heaven. They don't have that issue nailed down. And so I think this young man comes asking this question because these riches have not given him the peace he desires. He's unsettled. Now, the rich young ruler calls Jesus good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, we need to be very careful here. Jesus is not trying to deny his deity. Jesus is not saying, I'm not God in the flesh. That's not what Jesus is doing here by saying, only God alone is good. What Jesus is doing is trying to get to the heart of this man's misunderstanding of Jesus' identity. If this man truly understood who was standing in front of him, he would realize that this is indeed God in the flesh. This is more than just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a moral guru. He's not just a good ethical teacher. He's God in the flesh as the Messiah standing before this man, and he deserves ultimate allegiance. Not just this guy that's going to give him some good advice. He's the sovereign king of kings. Now, we really don't know why this rich young ruler comes and asks Jesus what must he do, but you can see that there's something about the issue of having riches that doesn't satisfy this man. He's insecure. What, what, what's that one thing I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? I'm not sure about my destiny, Jesus. I don't know if I have eternal life. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. What do I need to do? So that's the first thing we see here is there's this one thing this man wants to do in order to attain eternal life, and he's restless, he's, he's, he's unsure, because he's trusting in himself. And when you trust in yourself, when you trust in your riches, when you trust in what you can produce, that's only going to lead to anxiety. It's going to lead to a lack of peace. You're not going to have assurance if you're trusting in yourself. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is going to be very surprising to you. If you read this carefully, Jesus, secondly, crushes him with the law to expose his idolatry. You'd think that if a young man comes up to Jesus and says, how how do I get saved? Jesus would say, well, trust in me. Repent and believe in me. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What does Jesus tell this man? He goes straight to the Ten Commandments. He goes straight to the second table of the law. What does he say? Verse 20, 
You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, why does Jesus give him the Ten Commandments? Seems kind of strange. Well, here's the point. Jesus does this to expose his heart, to bring conviction of sin, to lay this man bare before him, to show him the painful reality that he could not do good enough to earn eternal life. What's his question? What must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, well, if you want to attain eternal life, here's what you got to do. Obey the Ten Commandments. Now, you're going to think this is a weird statement, but hang with me. If you could obey the Ten Commandments, you would earn eternal life. Let me just stop, stop right there. In the Garden of Eden, God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. You remember what God said to Adam? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Die. So what's the opposite of that? Adam, if you perpetually obey, you will live. So here's the point. In this covenant of works that God had with Adam in the garden, God basically said to Adam, if you perpetually obey, you can earn for yourself eternal life. If you, could, if you can continually obey me and never disobey me, you can earn for yourself eternal life. The covenant of work says this, do this and you'll live. Now, whatever the this is, is God's law. If you do this, you'll live. Now, what happened with Adam? What do we know happened? Did Adam obey the covenant of works that God gave him in the garden? No, he ate the forbidden fruit. And what ended up happening? He brought physical and spiritual death into the world. God reiterates this in Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If you can keep the Ten Commandments, you'll live by them. If you could do it. Well, Adam couldn't do it. And because Adam failed, every single one of us is born inheriting Adam's sin, inheriting Adam's guilt. And so we start out from the shoot already guilty and condemned, and we cannot do anything to earn eternal life. Adam disobeyed, Adam failed the test, and because we're his posterity, we automatically fail the test. And so why does Jesus give this young man the law? If we can't obey the law, why does Jesus give it to him? The reason that Jesus gives the Ten Commandments is to give a label to the sin in your heart. To put a label to it. To show exactly what sin is. To label the particular sin. This sin is murder. This sin is adultery. This sin is lying. This sin is disobeying your parents. And so the purpose of the Ten Commandments is like a dagger to stab you in the heart, to show you that you utterly have failed to live up to those Ten Commandments. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the Ten Commandments 
comes knowledge that you're a sinner. You see, here's the point. You need to know you're a sinner before you can be saved. You need to get lost before you can get saved. And most people think they're pretty good. And so Jesus gives him the Ten Commandments here to say, listen, here's a moral standard that you have to meet. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Talking about the Ten Commandments? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So Jesus lays the hammer down and says, Okay, here's, here's what it is. Here, here's what it is, rich young ruler. You want to know what the answer is? Obey the Ten Commandments. Now, what's the answer? that the young man gives. That's it, Jesus? That's no big deal. I've been keeping the Ten Commandments since I was 13, since I, was, since I had my bar mitzvah, since I was a son of the commandment. Notice what he says. Verse 21. All these I have kept from my youth. Now, youth there really means when he turned 13. Bar mitzvah, son of the commandment. Basically, the rich young ruler is saying, that's it, Jesus? I've been obeying these Ten Commandments for years now. It's no big deal, Jesus. The Ten Commandments, oh yeah, piece of cake. Now, he didn't realize he just broke the one, thou shalt not lie. Here's the problem. This rich young ruler did not realize that outward obedience to the Ten Commandments every now and then is not the standard. What's the standard? Here's the standard. For all of us, we need to be able to obey the Ten Commandments 100% of the time with 100% accuracy in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Anybody here do that? And guess what? What happens if you break just one of the Ten Commandments? In your thought. Not even in your deeds. James says this in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I've honored my parents, but I've lied. You've broken all of it. You just ruined it for yourself. So this young man was steeped in self-deception and pride. He didn't know the condition of his heart. He's thinking to himself, "This, this is no big deal, Jesus. The Ten Commandments, anybody can do that. He didn't realize that it was more than just outward obedience, but it goes to the heart of who you are in worshiping the Lord. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This man's heart's been deceived. He thinks he's good before God. Psalm 51.6 Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God desires truth in the inward being. Not just outward compliance to the Ten Commandments, but in the inward being. In your inner self. In your heart of hearts. You see, this man, when he was confronted with the law, with the Ten Commandments, he should have prayed Psalm 139, which I encourage every single one of us to pray every day. Here's a great prayer to pray every day. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, he should have been cut to the quick by the law, exposing his heart, and he should have just said, Lord, search my heart. I, 
I'm guilty. I, I haven't kept the Ten Commandments. But of course, he has this matter-of-fact attitude. Yeah, I've done all this stuff since I'm a youth, Jesus. Give me something bigger. Give me something better. This is no big deal. Ten Commandments got that down. Been doing that for years. Now, J.C. Ryle says this about the young man. J.C. Ryle says, quote, An answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance, it is impossible to conceive. So the purpose of the law is to lay us bare, to kill us dead in our tracks, to crush us in hopelessness, to show that we fall short of God's standard. Augustine, St. Augustine said this, The Ten Commandments is present only to convict and slay us to slay us, to kill us. John Calvin talks about the role of the Ten Commandments. He says that we're blind and intoxicated with self-love. And until that vanity in our hearts is made or shown to us, we're puffed up with an infatuated confidence in our own powers. And we'll never know our weakness until we are measured by God's law. You see, the Ten Commandments is like a mirror that's held up to expose you, to show you what's really there. Now, when I was staying in my hotel, it was an interesting hotel. It was right next to Disneyland, and like really right next to Disneyland because they were shooting off the fireworks like right outside my window. And um, they had one of those, you know those old, some of you may still have this in your home, those mirrors that are reversible that are on that little arm, and it's like the the big magnifying mirror. And you you look at it, you're like, whoa, I got a lot of pimples. I got a lot of wrinkles. I don't like what I see in this mirror. Turn it over. Okay, that's better. Okay. So the magnifying mirror, the, those magnifying mirrors, that's what the Ten Commandments does. It's like, whoa. It magnifies your weaknesses. It magnifies your, 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 your sin. It, it, the, the law is there to show you just how far you've fallen from God's standard. And so what's this man's sin? It's idolatry. He broke the first commandment. Because he made wealth his God. What's the first commandment? Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This man's God was his money. And so Jesus is kind of playing with him. I think it's kind of humorous. What's the one thing I need to do, Jesus? Okay, let me tell you the one thing. If you think you've obeyed the Ten Commandments, then prove it, young man. Prove it by loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with your whole heart, soul, and mind and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's the one thing you got to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. In essence, Jesus is saying, prove it. You think you've done the Ten Commandments? You think you love God perfectly with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and that you have no other gods before God and you love your neighbor as yourself? If you've obeyed the Ten Commandments, young rich ruler, Prove it. Put it into action. Sell all that you have and give your proceeds to the poor. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't lower the bar of God's standard. This is where some pastors get a little bit, um, they, they unintentionally soften the blow of this passage of Scripture. And I understand what pastors are trying to do. Sometimes pastors will say, well, you just got to be willing to give it all away. You just got to have the desire. You got to be willing to give it all away. Are you willing to surrender all? This young man, is there anything in this passage that says that you need to be willing to do it? Actually, that makes it, that actually softens the blow. Because being willing to do it is a whole lot easier than doing it. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you need to be willing to get rid of your riches. Jesus says, you need to get rid of your riches. 
you need to do this. Not just be willing to do it, but you need to actually get rid of everything that you have. Now, we need to be careful here. This is not a universal and absolute standard that Jesus gives to every single person on how to become a Christian. In order to become a Christian, it's salvation by poverty. You've got to get rid of everything that you own. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is addressing this particular man's particular situation, and it was his wealth. We know from the rest of the Bible that you shouldn't sell everything that you have because that's basically a lot of Proverbs tell you that's stupid to do. Paul tells you to work with your hands and to provide for your family. But Jesus knows what's in this man's heart. And the problem is this man had elevated his wealth above the Lord, and it was an idol. So Jesus goes straight to the idol, straight to the Ten Commandments, straight to his heart, and says, okay, you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? Prove it. Prove it. Love God, love your neighbor, get rid of everything. Now, this young man, how did he respond? Verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Mark's gospel said his, his face fell. He was disheartened. You go back and you look at the original word, it means his face was appalled. Almost like he, he was appalled and angry, and he walked away. He walked away sad, angered, frustrated. The law exposed him, yet he was not crushed by the law. He remained blinded in his pride. What should he have done when Jesus exposed the law to his heart? What should he have really have done? He should have done what Pastor Andrew preached a few weeks ago with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Just go back in the same passage of Scripture. Go back to verse 13 of chapter 18. Remember what the the tax collector prayed? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what the rich young ruler should have prayed. I've kept all these since I was a youth. I'm good to go, Jesus. I've got it all figured out. I'm trusting in myself. No, you haven't, rich young ruler. He walks away sad. He should have beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've fallen so short of God's standard. I haven't kept the Ten Commandments since I'm a youth. I am a wretched sinner. He walked away, not affected. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to address the danger of riches Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We know what the Bible says about riches. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money. 1 Timothy 6, 17, just a few verses down. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Again, we need to be careful here that Jesus is not making an absolute absolute statement that says only poor people go to heaven and rich people don't go to heaven. Abraham was pretty rich, and I'm sure he's in heaven. King David was pretty rich, and I'm sure he is in heaven. Okay, so this is not an absolute statement. But Jesus is honing in on the dangers of of wealth. 
And he makes this interesting illustration here in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The camel was the largest animal in the ancient Near East that they understood. Now, you may have heard somebody say, well, the needle was like a gate in Jerusalem that riders, when they came into town, that the camel couldn't go through, so he had to stoop down to go through the gate, and the gate was called the needle. That was made up in the 1800s, and there's no archaeological or any, any significance to that story at all. That's just a made-up story. Jesus is being literal here. Okay, look at the imagery. Big old camel, little needle. That's what he's trying to do. He's using exaggeration to prove a point here. So the image is meant to evoke utter shock and the impossibility of rich people entering heaven. Again, it's not an absolute statement because there are wealthy people that are Christians. So we've seen two issues this morning. Number one, trusting in yourself is going to bring anxiety. It's going to bring restlessness. It's going to bring a lack of peace. You're not going to have assurance if you trust in yourself. And then number two, Jesus says something very interesting. He crushes this man with the Ten Commandments to expose his heart, to hold up the mirror of the Ten Commandments so so the man can see the depths of his heart, to see how he hasn't lived up to God's standard, how he hasn't been obedient, how he's a sinner to the core. And he walks away sad. Okay, here's the third thing this morning. The sovereign grace of Christ alone saves you from your sin. The sovereign grace of Christ alone saves you from your sins. Now this shocked his disciples. Verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? You see, in that culture, to be blessed of God, you were wealthy. So in their minds, this, this guy had everything ticked on the box. Every, every check on the box has is, is got to be checked off there. He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. He's got a lot of wealth. It was almost like the prosperity gospel. He, ha, he must be blessed of God. So in the disciples' minds, in the people of that culture's mind, if this guy can't be saved, if this guy can't get to heaven, who, who is wealthy, who must have God's blessing, then who can get saved? If this guy can't get saved, there's no hope for any of us. Because obviously he's blessed of God because he's rich. And notice the answer Jesus gives in verse 27. The $10 million answer to the $10 million question. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. If you trust in yourself, it's impossible to be saved. If you trust in your riches, it's impossible to be saved. If you trust in your good works, it's impossible to to be saved. If you trust in your spirituality, it's impossible to be saved. If you trust in going to church and not breaking the rules and keeping your nose clean and trying to be a good citizen, it's impossible for you to be saved. And here's why. Salvation is a sovereign work of God where he reaches down from heaven and takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And no human being can do that. It's impossible for you to save yourself or to bring yourself out of the depths of your sin. God must do a powerful work, an impossible work, of transformation deep in your heart. God must give you a brand new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26-27. God says, I will give you a new heart. 
And a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God has to take out your heart of stone, that dead, stony, unresponsive, wicked heart, and give you a brand new heart. Only God can do that. It's impossible for you to do that, but God can do that. You must be born again. You can't cause yourself to be born again any more than you cause your physical birth to happen. John 3, 6-8, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Supernatural, impossible for you to cause yourself to be born again. God has to do it. He has to cause you to be born again. He has to give you a new heart. He has to make you alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Once God opens your heart, Once God causes you to be born again, once God makes you spiritually alive, guess what happens? God's done the impossible, but guess what happens? You've now been freed to come to faith in Christ. And you do that willingly, and you do that joyfully, and you do that freely. Because God has done the impossible. He's changed you from the inside out. And you find for the very first time Jesus to be a powerful Savior. I love Hebrews 7.25, one of my favorite verses from Hebrews. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to think about the contradiction between the law and the gospel that we've seen in this passage. If you don't get this, you're not going to get a lot of the Bible. If you don't get the distinction between law and gospel, you're going to be lost a lot of times when you read the Bible. Okay, So what is the law? The law says you must do this. Do, do, do. Obey perfectly. Obey perpetually. Obey in thought. Obey in word. Obey in deed. The problem is you can't do that. But it's still the standard. The best passage of Scripture that shows you law and gospel side by side is in Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 3, 10 through 13, you see law and you see gospel. Okay, what is law? For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you want to Do everything in the law. You must do them perfectly, perpetually, 100% of the time. If you could do that, you could earn for yourself salvation. The problem is you can't. And all you are is under a curse. You're under condemnation. You're under guilt. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Okay, here's gospel, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is every one who's hanged on a tree. Let me just succinctly give you the difference between law and gospel. Law says, what must I do? Answer, obey the Ten Commandments. Can you do that? No. It just puts you further and further in guilt. Gospel says, look at what has been done for you perfectly in Christ's accomplishment on the cross. Jesus Christ died and rose again and he completed the work fully and finally so that we can receive that gift of grace. The gospel says you must do. I mean, the law says you must do. The gospel says it's done. Now, let's think about how Luke frames this narrative. The rich young ruler probably the most affluent, prominent man in that area. He had it all. But what comes right before? There's no mistake. Luke likes to put things into pairs. The Pharisee, the tax collector. What comes right before this? Go back up to verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a rich young ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There we go. What should the rich young ruler have done? Have the faith of a child confessed his sins, and trusted in Jesus for salvation. He should have had a faith of a child. He should have stopped trusting in his wealth and his possessions and his prominence and become like a child and humbled himself and cried out for mercy. He should have been crushed by the law and come to Jesus and said, I am toast without you, Jesus. I'm casting myself at your mercy. You see, there's a stark contrast in these two back-to-back events. Those that have childlike faith receive eternal life. But the law-keeping young prominent man who trusts in himself walks away lost and does not inherit eternal life. So salvation comes by having a childlike trust in Jesus. You don't trust in yourself. You don't trust in your riches. You don't trust in what you can do, what you can accomplish, what you've, your resume. You look outside of yourself and you trust in Jesus. Stop trusting in what's going to get you security and, and, and satisfaction and purpose. Instead, receive Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Come to Jesus with the faith of a child. Find in Jesus your security. Find in Jesus your satisfaction. Find in Jesus your purpose. Rest in His finished work on your behalf. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel says it is finished. And Jesus loves sinners. Are you a sinner here today? Jesus loves you. And guess what? He stands ready, willing, and able to receive all who would come to him in childlike faith and said, I'm stopped trusting in myself. 
and I'm going to trust in what Jesus has done. You see, the law says, what must I do? I'm going to stop thinking about all the things I have to do and I must do and what I need to do and, and this and that. And the gospel says, stop trusting in what you can do and trust in what's been done for you by Jesus on the cross. You see, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. He's the God of the impossible. The God of grace, the God of forgiveness, the God of eternal life, the God who sent his only son, Jesus, to be the only way of salvation. And it comes through faith. Who can be saved? Well, it's impossible with you. But with God, all things are possible. And how does that become possible? With childlike faith, you cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus and you stop trusting in yourself and you say, Jesus, I'm resting in your finished work. And guess what he gives you? He gives you that peace. He gives you that assurance. He gives you that settledness in your heart to know the answer to the question, will I have eternal life? Will I go to heaven? Yes if you have the childlike faith that trusts in Christ and you stop trusting in yourself. So will we all leave this place trusting in Christ alone? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Some of us here this morning that are trusting in ourselves, Lord, and it's, it's so easy to trust in what we can accomplish we get so self-sufficient and we think we can solve problems and we can answer life's difficulties and we can do it ourselves. And we're a lot like the rich young ruler where we are deceived. And Lord, instead, we should fall on our faces and say, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I need Jesus alone. And so Lord, help us to stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in you you are our King. You're our Savior. You're the only one that can bring us true salvation, true satisfaction. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. You are the God of the impossible, and for that we're thankful. You can do all things for your glory. So Lord, if there's anybody here today that's never, for the very first time, trusted in Jesus for salvation, would today be that day? They sense that conviction deep in their hearts that they're, they're giving up trusting in themselves and for the very first time they're, they're crying out for Jesus to be their Savior. Lord, would you, would you do that in people's hearts this morning that have never, never done that before? And Lord, it's, it, remind us it's a daily struggle for us. To, to, we're always trusting in ourselves. We're always trying to figure things out on our own. Help us to look outside of ourselves and look to you, Jesus. Help us day by day to have childlike faith a faith that just jumps into your arms because there's nowhere else to go. Help us to love you and to serve you and to, to find in you, Jesus, our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate purpose, our ultimate glory. Help us not to hold on to idols. Help us to be warned of riches and to find our ultimate satisfaction in you, Jesus. And we ask this all for your glory. And for our good, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.